0: You're listening to Manx Radio and this is Judith Lay welcoming you to the podcast edition of The Archive Room. We're all aboard the steam railway tonight with stories from people who devoted their working life to the smooth running of the trains that was such an important part of island life in years gone by. Cyril Millcrest, like his father before him, spent his working life on the railways. At Port Soderick and then Union Mills, as he now explains to Charles Gard. My father
1: started on the Isle of Man Railway as a nipper at Union Mills Station in 1906. And uh, he, the station master at Union Mills at that time, was Mr. G.H. Hogg, who was tragically killed in July 1947. And that was the end of July 47 that I was appointed Station master to Union Mills. How did that accident happen? There weren't many accidents on the railways. No, it was pretty free from uh, accidents. But uh, that morning, it was a train leaving Douglas and the railway staff called it the Hot Pot Special. That was a train that left Douglas at 10 minutes past 10.00 and went right through to Kirkmichael and the passengers enlightened from the train at Kirkmichael and walked through to Glenwillen, had a um, walk round the Glen, and then went into the cafe at Glenwillen for a, a lunch, then walked back to Kirkmichael station, boarded the train at Kirkmichael for Ramsey, and the uh, ticket then entitled them to either come back from Ramsey to Douglas by train or by bus via the coast road. And that was the train that uh, killed George Hogg. It was that train and to this day nobody really knew what happened, whether he took a dizzy spell or just fell between the coaches. Of course that blocked the road for quite considerable time and of course there was lots of people here, of police and everything like that. It was gone lunchtime before they actually got the train clear. The passengers that were on the train were taken from Union Rail through to uh, St. John's and then on a special train from St. John's through to Kirk Michael. As a young boy though did you not want to be an engine driver rather than a station master? How did you get into the railways? Well it was in um, about 1933 wasn't an awful lot of work in the Isle of Man at that time and I was a messenger boy in Peel at the time, in a shop in Peel and uh, this vacancy became at became St. John's. And my dad, being a, a railway man and everything else, he thought it would be a good opportunity to get me in sort of permanent work. So I started at St. John's as a gateman and uh, clerk in 1933. Well, of course, we uh, went away for six years during the war. Demobbed in 1946. Restarted work in the May 1946 as a relief clerk. And then I went to Port sodric as station master, at Port sodric for the summer months in June of winter forty six and forty seven I'd done relief work between the different different stations and then, when the summer timetable came on in the may forty seven I went back to port saudric and in July the twenty seventh of forty seven I was Appointed Station Master at Union Mills. But uh, I had been to stay at the Union Mills Station before that, For the Sunday after Mr Hogg was killed, I went there as a relief to keep the station open. And just by the bridge, the road bridge at Union Mills, Mr Hogg always had a wooden box and he had some beautiful roses in them. The roses he used for cut flowers for his buttonhole. And I remember on the Sunday, opening the office at Union Mills, and there on the desk, there was a little vase with two cut roses. And they must have been the roses that he was wearing for that, that week. Now, when you started at Union Mills, you weren't at that time living in the village, so you later got a commissioner's house. I gather you had to be up early and cycle in, sometimes from some journals. Yes, yes, um... I lived at St John's when I was first appointed um to a station master, and I used to have the cycle from St. John's leave St John's at twenty minutes till seven to get here, but just after ten past seven when there used to be a light engine leaving Douglas and that went right through to Peel to bring a train, a passenger train or a school train from Peel into Douglas. And at nights you Eventually we were able to get the bus home, but you had to make sure your bike was in St John's the next day for the next morning's journey. Uh, Saturday night, there was a late train, nine o'clock leaving Douglas, and I would have to uh, wait till the train got to Crosby and then close the station and wait then for the last bus from Douglas through to St John's, and your bike would be on the train. Bike gone on as uh, earlier on in the night and left at Down Station. Well, let's talk about the station here now. We're sheltering under the bridge which carries the main road through Union Mills, sheltering out of a a shower. Over there is the remains of the platform, much overgrown, no doubt now, with trees. As we've just walked down the steps from the road, you tell me there would once have been the buildings. What buildings were there? When I first took over at Union Mills, there wasn't a walkway down from the road to the railway station. There were steps, and... um, One of the duties that the station master had was to look out for married ladies that had prams with children in and to help them down the steps into the station. The station was just below. Uh, There was an office, a small waiting room with um, a seat, ladies' toilet and gents' toilet. And then about five or ten yards from the railway station, there was what they called the porters' hut where they stored your paraffin oil, your uh, cleaning materials, and uh, any such things like that. What about the decoration of the station, though? You were quite keen on uh, the flowers, weren't you? When I came to Union Wells, I I thought the least I could do was to uh, try to keep the the station tidy and uh, make it as pretty as I could, trimming round the large three legs of man that was on the bank just by the walkway down into the station, and then on the left-hand side of the station going into Douglas there was a um, a bank and there was three flower beds. In those days we used to uh, fill with um, anterionums and lots of other plants that the uh, the residents of Union Mills brought down to the station and underneath the flower beds there was the letters Union Mills and they were done like the um, three legs of man in white used to keep that tidy and the summer start of the summer timetable it was always nice to get the letters and the three legs of man tidy up and shining more or less through the, um, the black soil so that it was quite a sight coming into the uh, station and of course the, uh, the flower beds on the top made it that much prettier as the evening approached, as the light faded, one of your duties was to light the lamps. Uh, yes, in the summertime, you'd only light them perhaps for an hour when the uh, night started to get dark. But in the winter time, wintertime, on a, particularly on a wet day, when you had to walk, what, five or 600 yards in the rain and then climb the signal and put your signal lamp in, more often than not, Walking down to the signal, it would blown out. And then you had to struggle with the lamp inside your coat, striking matches to relight it. Or when you got to the top of the signal box, uh, the signal to put it in the container, it blew out then. Of course, you had to go down the ladder again to relight it at the bottom. But that was all one of the hazards of the job. And uh, I quite enjoyed working at the railways. But you had a, a, a warm room to go back to. Oh, yes, in the morning, particularly in the morning when the workers went into Douglas from Union Mills, they always used to come into the, the office in the morning and gather around the old stove, which is well stoked up with steam coal. Yes, steam coal. Now, what's the bull road, which is a, a track that runs up above the back of the station there? Well, the bull road was put in by the railway company as a road separate from the station, to lead down to the cattle pen, which was at the bottom end of the station. And the farmers, when they came with the cattle, one of them would report to the station, while the other drove the cattle down to the bull road and the pen. And you always had cattle trucks at the pen so that the farmers could drive the cattle straight into the cattle truck and wait there for the station master to go down and close the doors and make sure it was safe for transport. Of course, Charles, when the uh, farmers came to load the cattle, the station staff had to make sure that the cattle trucks were clean and fresh straw in the cattle trucks to keep the cattle or sheep for ponies in the condition that they were when they arrived at at the station. What about your hours and how many weeks a year did you work? We worked 51 weeks in the year. And of course, the first year, you, you always worked as a week in hand. So you had to do a full 12 months before you got any, any holidays. And of course then in those days, the hours, um, they were very long. Uh, I'll give you an instance here now as the, this is a timetable that was 1895. The uh, first train leaving Peel in those days was 7.15. And the last train at night time leaving Peel was 10 minutes past 10. And, of course, those days you had to be there 20 minutes before the train departed and 20 minutes afterwards. And um, if it was possible, you had to take an hour off for your meals at lunchtime and perhaps during the course of the afternoon if you had a spare period where there was no trains going through, you had to take an hour or forty minutes, whatever the case may be. The hours were long, but the hours that you got paid was sometime uh, somewhere in the region of about eight hours forty. One of the stories that was told to me when I first took over Union Mills, there was uh, a major harris he lived on the Strang Road. Great railway man and everything. He used to spend a lot of time at Union Mills Station. And in the office, there was a bell, a hand bell. And Major Harris gave me the history of the hand bell. And the history is that when the mail train arrived at Junior Mills and it then departed for Crosby, the station master would go to the up the steps to the station entrance and ring this bell as such. And the word would get round the village then that the mail had arrived, and anybody that was expecting a parcel or a letter would collect it from Mr. Hogg, the station master. I have here the original whistle, railwayman's whistle issued to me in 1946 when I first went to Fort Soderick and I brought the whistle with me to Union Mills and I've kept it as a souvenir of my happy days spent at Union Mills railway station now the procedure with the whistle was that the station master would walk along the platform until he got to the engine and then he would walk back along the train, shouting, mind the doors, and then when he was certain, in his own mind, that everybody was on the train, and the doors were fastened properly, he would turn round, and (coughs) signal to the driver that he was ready to proceed, and then he would turn facing the opposite way, and give the guard the signal, that the train could go. The guard then would wave the green flag and the engine would whistle. The guard would board the train in his own guard's compartment and lean out on the opposite side of the guard's compartment to where he boarded the train and show a white flag to the driver or the fireman that everything was clear. And the train would then proceed into douglas following that the station master would then go into the office and ring the crossing gates at the quarter bridge to let the gatekeeper know that the train had left Union mills and his duty then was to open the gates straight away for the train to come
0: It was a busy morning when David Collister visited Balasala Halt, enabling station master Peter Crane to show David how to manage the simultaneous arrival of two trains. What
2: happens here when the two trains come in? Well, I, I will receive word from Castletown uh, when the train has left and I've got seven minutes for that train to arrive here. I can also see from here to Bala Woods and it takes three minutes from it for a train to get from Ballywoods to here so I then have to decide which train comes in first because under the rule book only one train can arrive uh, at the station at one, any one time. But you've they
3: got two lots of tracks here that can pass can't they?
2: Oh yes they do pass here. But you've got but to
3: have one in first before the other haven't you?
2: Yes one train has to arrive at the station and pull to a halt before the other one is allowed in mm. so it's a matter of timing as to which arrives first the one from Douglas or the one from Castletown. <laughs> Well now, the station master
3: here, Peter Crane, has just picked up what do we call this piece of wood with a brass uh, nameplate on, Peter?
2: Well, this is a staff. The railway operates on uh, what's known as the staff and ticket system, uh, being a single line track. It's necessary for a driver to have this as the authority to proceed with the full knowledge that he knows that there's nothing coming in the opposite direction because a train can't proceed without the staff. This system's been in use always on Manx Rivers, has it? It's always been in use on the of Man Railway. Well, any single-line railway operates on this system. Of course, in the early days, they used to send a man, a pilot man, as they called them. But of course, it was cheaper to have a piece of wood than to have a man.
3: Yes, that's a fairly old staff by the look of it, too.
2: Yes, it may possibly be the original one. It's very uh, worn, the brass lettering. Some of the newer ones that have, you know, been made up recently, we've, they've just got plastic lettering.
3: Well, now, this is the train that's drawn in from Douglas on its way to Port Erin drawn by the Maitland. That's a, an old engine is it?
2: Well the Maitland was uh, one of what we call the, the larger boiler locomotives that were purchased from 1905 onwards. Maitland was uh, one of the directors, Dalrymple Maitland was the director of the railway uh, about that period and the locomotive was named after him. Of course it's been reboiled several times and uh, it's now in first-class condition of course.
3: Now the driver's doing a bit of maintenance here as well with his oil can I see.
2: Well at the moment he's oiling up the bearings, uh, one of which is running slightly warm, so he's giving it a good soak with oil. Four carriages on here now, and oh here's the uh, next train now coming in from Port end. Yes. This is number 12, the Hutchinson. Oh, yes. I've got with in my hands the staff which authorised the train to proceed between Balasala and Castletown. But r- instead of giving this staff to the other driver, I've given him a ticket because I've got another train coming through following him so the first train goes on the ticket and the second train goes on the staff Train left 10.47, the other arrived 10.42
3: Well there we are, two trains in and out like clockwork there uh, Peter but you're not really finished yet because I I see you've got papers and sheets to fill in here and reports to do
2: well yes I have to keep a daily register of trains uh, the time of arrival and time of departure the locomotive number the number of coaches the estimated number of people who arrive and depart well it seems to be as popular as ever the old manx steam train, does not it yes we're, we're quite busy I hope it continues like that
0: couple of stories involving travel but not on the trains. When David Collister talked with Arthur Underhill about his time in the island's police force, he discovered that in the 1930s there was no police transport and, unlikely as it seems today, thumbing a lift from a member of the public sometimes was the only option. David was curious to know if Arthur had ever resorted to doing this himself. I certainly did, and it was it it, it was productive,
4: but uh, it, it was it was rather strange. I was night section sergeant, and I was walking over towards Broadway, and it was still very busy, you know, in the summer, mm. and it was a lovely night. And Sergeant Brown was at, at Broadway, and he was due to go off. And I actually, I I was I was in the roadway. I don't know why the heck I was in the roadway. I shouldn't have been in the roadway, but I was. And a car came along, and had no lights on. Well, in those days, we couldn't be bothered with that sort of thing at that time of the night because we had far too, the thing was far too hectic. Yeah. So what we used to do, we used to point to, to the lights, you see, and invariably they would be switched on um, and you'd sign them yeah, on. Yeah. Well, I pointed to the lights, <laughs> and he didn't switch them on, but he drove straight at me. So I, I jumped out of the way, and I thought, how am I going to catch him? So there was a car came along, a lovely big Jaguar car. So I stopped them, and I knew this chap. Yeah. And I, I said, look, follow that car. So he said, right, so we went, and this car, he knew we were after him. And uh, when he got fast Broadway, he realized that the, 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 there was a problem somewhere, and he turned and went up Broadway, and he went up on the pavement, yeah. fortunately. There were no visitors there at the time, and he, he, he didn't knock anybody over. And then by this time, Sergeant Brown knew what was happening, and he'd got a car too, and the two of us were following him, and he was weaving about all over the going up, and at St Ninian's, I thought, now, what'll he do now? And he swung down Bray Hill. And here we followed them all the way along Quarterbridge Road, yeah. right along to the Quarterbridge. Now I thought, oh no, he's not going to go back into town again. And they swung round about into town, going back into town. So at the bottom of Daisy Hill, they, for some reason, they hit the curb and they turned the car over. Well, we were able to catch up with them, and uh, one chap was hurt, and we had to go. He had to go to the hospital, and they got we got the other fellow out, and. Um, he had the most wonderful set of house implements I've ever seen <laughs> and they were on their way up to Anken to yeah. break and into some place we found out, but uh, they never achieved that. And yeah. uh, but uh, that was the only time I I can ever recollect I I had to uh, get the assistance and I I picked a right good car because he he used to he was saying to me on the well I pass him no I said don't do yeah. that yeah. He'll, he'll crash into you yeah. and uh, but uh, they were, the the public were very good they were always very helpful yeah.
0: And finally, when David Conister met up with Hector Duff to talk about his time in the police force, the conversation began with stories from Hector's younger days growing up in Selby. Now, in,
5: in them days, there was uh, the Manx Electra Rail we used to bring people up to the bungalow and they had small coaches or shatterbangs, we called them in them days, yeah. and they used to drive the people down to the alt. At will there was a path going up through the glen, up to the top of the glen, just beyond uh, the entrance of the reservoir, and that's called the Alt. Oh, There's a yes. little hut there, right. and they used to walk down through the glen to Thalterwill, and they'd have a lunch there, and then they could either walk back up again and get the coach, or they could get, a, in them days, a horse and trap down to Sulby Glen. Oh, right, yes. And in them days, there used to be about three uh Landau, as they were called, travelling from Solby Glen Railway Station up to Thalterwill. There used to be Johnny Redpath and Johnny Crane. Johnny Crane, he was called Johnny the Mitch. He was Mitch, It mean, match, actually. He was always saying, you've got a Mitch, you've got a Mitch. <laughs> and uh, sometimes he was called Mr Swan Vesta. Johnny the Mitch, we always called him. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes he would have... Uh, if he had a, if he had four people as a rule within the land, up, but sometimes if he had six in, he would get one of us young fellows to go with him. We'd walk behind, mm. and then if he had to stop on any of the hills, he had a big block attached to a chain, which would go to the wheel to give the horse a rest. Yes. So we got to ride back sometimes in, uh, the, in Orlando. It wasn't too bad, really. The biggest hill was the approach to Alderwill by what
0: we used to call the Rabbit Catchers' houses. There, the Rabbit Catchers' houses. Well, that's a story for the next time that we're together, because this is the last in the present series of the archive room. So it just remains for me to thank our archivist, Tim Price, for his help with research and production, and my thanks to you for listening. If you've missed any earlier programmes or you'd like to share them with friends, you'll find them all available as podcasts at manxradio.com to download and listen whenever it suits you. I can't sign off by saying till next week, but Howard Hampton can still say... So long, you yeah, sir. The Nation Station